Good morning, Castleton Church family. It is a wonderful thing that our God is our King and that He would be the Lord of our hearts. I hope you're joyful to be with us in worship this morning. I'm certainly glad to be with you. Uh, I'm especially glad because this is the first Sunday of the month. That means it is our family worship Sunday, and that means we have some children with us uh, in our corporate worship service. Kids, we're glad you're here. And uh, if you're not sure how to engage in what we're singing, and maybe even with this sermon, just, just try to think of one thing that you've heard that you could ask your parents about later in the day. Uh, just try to grab one thing, one idea, and uh, see if maybe you could ask your mom and dad about it after church is over. This morning, we actually are coming to the end of our series through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Our, our text is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 28. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 28. Well, let's begin with reading of God's word. This is what scripture says. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we, we come to you together now, expectant that you hear us when we pray and expectant that we will hear from you when your word is preached, we ask, us, we, we ask that you would open our hearts. Would you grant us the desire to be the sort of church that remains faithful, a healthy church in our relationships with each other, but more importantly, with our relationship with you. Keep us until the day the Lord Jesus returns. We pray in his mighty name. Amen. How should I rejoice? If God were to give me that church, then I might preach the gospel there and be a herald for him in the university. Those words were spoken by a young preacher by the name of Charles Simeon. He was walking by a church called Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge. And like many young preachers, he had visions, even wonderful dreams of how God might use him, if only if 
he'd be granted to be pastor of that church. Well, lo and behold, the Lord granted him that dream. He let him become pastor of that church. But I think Brother Charles Simeon might have had a few unexpected occurrences that he, he didn't have as a part of that dream. Uh, it turned out that this was not a healthy church. Um, the world is filled with churches that are in some manner or the other unhealthy, but this one, maybe it takes the cake. It was a church that didn't have a healthy relationship with God. Uh, that One of the, the big problems they had is they did not want uh, a sort of ministry that focused on Bible preaching. They would much rather have comfortable forms of religion. You know, the formal sort of services that didn't challenge you too much. Well, that meant a, a Bible preacher like Simeon was someone they were not interested in. Uh, and the second thing, they had problems with relationships with each other. Uh, that manifested itself with some pew power brokers. Some members of the church uh, had the rights to certain seats in the church. The, the pews literally had doors on them, and you would rent those pews and the right to open them with a key. Well, when people didn't like Charles Simeon being called as their pastor, they decided that not only did they not want to hear him preach, but they would make sure nobody else would either. So they literally locked the pews so people could not come and hear him preach. Not a very loving thing to do, to keep someone from coming to church and having a place to sit. Now, kids, th this is one of those moments that it's really fun to visualize. They were so mean and evil in this moment that when Pastor Simeon actually bought chairs himself and set them up in the aisles, the people actually came and threw those chairs out into the lawn to double make sure that nobody had a place to sit. That's two strikes, pretty unhealthy church. There's one last mark of unhealth, though, and that is undoubtedly their view of leadership. Their relationship with their leaders was extremely unhealthy. Pastor Simeon figured this out very quickly. People said all sorts of evil, slanderous things about him. They even tried to physically harm him. Uh, he had people waiting to mug him as he came out of the church on more than one occasion. Someone literally threw a brick through the window mid-service, all to send the message. They did not respect the pastor that God had placed over them in that church. Now, undoubtedly, Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, back in the 1700s, is an extreme example of an unhealthy church. And yet, I bet... You don't have to think too hard in your own experience to come up with an example of a church that somehow or the other is unhealthy. Churches have ways of chewing people up and spitting them out. Very often, Christians get wounded by other Christians in the church, which leads to the question, how do you keep that from happening to our church? Is there a sort of preventative maintenance that God could give us to do that we might remain a healthy church? Well, it's for that exact reason that this section of Thessalonians was written. Paul was writing to a largely healthy church. The Thessalonians were a church that were commendable in many ways. They, they loved God's word. They loved the apostle Paul. And they loved each other. And yet Paul, at the end of this letter gives them 
a set of things they need to keep their eye on for them to remain healthy. And those things are all relationships. It turns out what a healthy church needs to remain healthy is it needs healthy relationships. There are three different types of relationships that Paul will exhort them in. They'll correspond to our three points this morning. They, they are as follows. First, verses 12 through 13, we'll see we need healthy relationships with our leaders. Healthy relationships with our leaders. Second, in 14 through 15, we'll see we need healthy relationships with each other. With each other. And then third, and finally, we'll see that we need healthy, a healthy relationship with God. A healthy relationship with God. Let's begin with that first one. We need healthy relationships with our leaders in verses 12 through 13. Those, uh, that verse begins with Paul making a, a very kind sort of uh, command. It's, a, it's a, an ask with a, a tone to it that says that they, in some way they're already doing this. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Now, these two verses, 12 and 13, have at least two sides we need to look at. First, we need to look at what it says about the leaders of the church. And second, what it says about how the members of the church relate to those leaders. Now, there's an assumption in Paul's writing here that I, I fear many Christians today do not share. That is the assumption that there are right sort of positions of leadership and authority that God has in the church. Uh, I was reading a, a book on pastoring and eldering, and uh, one thing the author says, we live in a day and age when people like to assume that they can be their own shepherd. That is, that they don't need any sort of leadership or spiritual authority over them. I, I think that's largely true. Most people that identify as Christians these days seem to think that they can live the Christian life on their own terms by themselves if necessary. If you take that sort of viewpoint, it's very difficult to see why you need church or leaders of a church at all. But the New Testament shows us a very different pattern. It shows us a pattern that when people are converted, when they come to faith in Christ, that they are converted into a community, that is the church. You, you can walk through the book of Acts and watch this pattern play out. The, the gospel goes somewhere, people believe it. They're gathered together into fellowships or churches. And then the next step, God raises up leaders among them. Elders is what they're called. Godly men who are given the charge of shepherding the flock, providing leadership so that the congregation might be built up in their faith. Paul doesn't here name these men as elders, but I think it's safe to assume that's who he's referring to, these leaders who are among them. Now, what is it that these elders do? Well, the words used in the, the verse give you an idea. They labor they work, and, and that labor and work is, in some sense, the uh, one of helping you to think. They admonish you. The, the word for admonish is to literally to put into someone's mind. It, to, it's to correct, to help someone to think rightly, and to therefore change their actions. 
If you were to take a time to do a Bible study through the whole Bible, what an elder does, I think it's right, as author Timothy Whitner, Whitmer summarizes, to say there are four areas that their ministry needs to have. They, they are to know the sheep. They, they're to know the members of the congregation intimately. They are to lead them. That is provide direction and oversight. They, they are to feed them. That is to teach them, to provide teaching from God's word. And then finally, they are to protect them, to warn them of dangers and keep the spiritual wolves at bay. Paul has an assumption here of this type of leadership. He, he, so much so that he can describe these brothers as being over you in the Lord. That is, they have a, a right sort of God-given authority. Now, at, at this moment, though, we, we need to guard against a different sort of excess that, unfortunately, the American church has had plenty of lately, and that is abuse of authority. The sort of authority described here for these elders is not, it's not a, a position of privilege, now, it's a position of service. These men are called to exercise this authority for the good of the church. And in so doing, they're following the example of Jesus. That true leadership in the church is leadership of service. It's a well-known passage straight from the lips of Jesus. In Mark 10, 42 through 45, Jesus set up this exact expectation. What leaders in his kingdom are going to be like. And Jesus called to them and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever be great among you must be your servant. True leadership, according to Jesus. True leadership is to get down and on your knees and serve to work for the benefit of others. That, that's what these uh, brothers are called to do here. They labor, they work for the benefit of the church. Well, second side of that, though, is how should members relate to them? Well, there's two ways that are described. They are first to respect them. Now, it's been rightly said that respect is not given, it's earned. Now it's true there is a sort of respect that should come just from the office of elder or pastor. There, there is a, a sense where that's true. And, and yet, did you notice how Paul specifically ties the respect and the love to the work that these brothers do? Right there in verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Well, that means that the respect and love that elders are uh, deserve from members is one that will be built over time. The day after day, as you see a godly brother pray for you, ask you how you're doing, give you encouragements from the word, help to lift you up when you are spiritually down, day after day as you see them gently and humbly correct you, your heart will begin to change toward them. You'll, you'll find yourself with a, your heart knit toward them in a way that you love them, in a way that you are very thankful, even respectful about the work that God has called them to do among you. 
in a sense, this respect and love is the most natural thing in the world when you see someone serving you this way. I, I remember a particular pastor that had a big impact on our family. We had a moment that was scary. We were expecting one, uh, one of our children and uh, one of the initial tests that they do seemed to indicate there might be some sort of medical issue. And, and this pastor came and very gently walked alongside us and prayed with us and helped us to trust Jesus in that moment. And I know that I will forever be thankful for that brother. And I have a newfound respect because of the way he did that service for us in that such a tender moment. That's the vision of church leadership that God intends for us to have. He intends for, yes, there to be brothers that are called to the office of pastor and elder, but he intends for them to, to work for our good and for our hearts to be stirred with affection and respect and love toward them. Now, church, I have to say I, I'm very thankful that you do not make it difficult for me to do the work of pastoring you with joy. Your love, your charity, your grace toward me is, makes it something that, I, frankly, I, I, I don't know how the Lord could provide me with the same level of joy doing anything else. But I do have a burden that you know that I am not the only one that's called to do this work of shepherding among you. Uh, alongside our staff, that would be myself, Eric, uh, Luke, and Matt, our pastoral staff that do this sort of shepherding work, uh, alongside them, w w alongside us, we have what we call lay elders, that is, uh, pastors that don't receive a paycheck from the church. They, they work other jobs, and they pastor in their evenings and weekends. And those lay elders do this work among you, and they do it so well. I'm so thankful for Terry Seitz and, and Jonathan Mertz and Brian Landis. Each of them works diligently and humbly and gently among you. Uh, chances are you don't see the vast majority of what they do. And yet I hope that at least, at least one, you would know at least one of us. And that's sort of way that your heart begins to be knit toward the elders God has raised up over you. One thing you can do to make their task joyful is you can, you can be open when they come to you and ask, how can I pray for you? They're not trying to, to go fishing to find some dirt to dig up on you. They're, they're trying to help you. If you would welcome them into your life when they, they come asking how they can encourage you, that would do them that shows incredible respect and it would show an incredible amount of love toward them. One thing you can also do is to pray for your elders. I, I encourage you to do that. You can pray generally that the Lord would allow us to do this work and to do it well, but you can ask them. Next time you talk with one of us, ask, how can I pray for you in your task of leadership in the church? Uh, one thing that all the men in the church should be asking yourself is if the Lord were to call you to be an elder one day, what would you need to do between now and then to be ready for that sort of ministry yourself? Uh, scripture tells us it is a, a worthy endeavor. It is a good desire to aspire to be an elder. And if you've never asked yourself that question, it's a fruitful thing to ask. Very often the thing that might prevent you from serving as an elder is the very thing that God wants you 
to grow in, in your walk with Christ. So ask yourself, could the Lord use me? Could he use me to serve the church in this way? And if not, what would prevent him from doing so? Well, it's really important for a church to have a right relationship with its leaders, but that's not the only area it needs a right relationship. That's our second point. We need a healthy relationship with each other. That's what we see in verses 14 and 15. At first glance, it may look like these verses are just a random assortment of commands, but I don't think so. I think they fall into three categories. Care for each other, the manner in which we're supposed to care for each other, that is with patience, and then, and then mercy, what happens when we are harmed by each other. First, care for each other. There a series of short commands he gives there in verse 14 and 15. We urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. All three of those things are th things you only do if you really care for someone. You only take the time to correct someone, to admonish them, if you actually care about the outcome of their faith. You only take the time to come alongside someone that is easily discouraged and put your arm around them and encourage them in the Lord if you genuinely care for them. You only take the time to help someone in the midst of their grief or in the midst of a, a difficult season of depression. You only take the time to go out of your way to help them if you genuinely love them. Paul says the whole church has a ministry here to care for each other. The body is supposed to care for itself. But just as important as the actions of that ministry are the ways we're supposed to go about it. That is with patience. He says, be patient with all. Now, when you take the time to actually try and help someone, one of the easiest things to do is to grow frustrated when they don't change as quickly as you would like. Ever catch yourself saying something like this, or at the very least thinking of it? Why don't they understand how to do that yet? I, I can't believe they did that again. Are they ever going to get over this issue? So often, we get on our high horse, we get self-righteous as we see shortcomings in other believers, especially ones, especially ones that we're trying to help. We have an up-close view of their life, and sometimes those flaws are easy to see. But what would, be, what would it be like if instead of thinking about the shortcomings people have now, if instead you looked at what God was making them into? How might that change the patience you have for them in this moment? If you actually saw God's activity as something that's not just measured in, in hours and days, but in weeks and months and years, yes, even in a lifetime. Some types of fruit take time to bear, brothers and sisters. Patience, patience with each other is so key if we are to truly care for each other and show the love of Christ as we do. Third is mercy. Mercy, you see that in verse 15. It says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. There's a, a great Mike Tyson quote. You know, that he was a fierce boxer and he, he wasn't one that had much of a boxing strategy. He was just a, a gigantic puncher. 
And he said, uh, of other boxers who had lots of strategies, he said, you know, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. That's a great quote about boxing. It's also very similar to the reality of what happens when you get hurt by somebody. So often we think we're loving, we think we're patient, we think we're merciful, until someone actually hurts us. And in that moment, we realize how high of a calling it is not to repay evil for evil, but to repay it for good. Brothers and sisters, this is a high calling of how we are to be involved with each other's life. And yes, to even extend love and grace and mercy with patience toward each other. And maybe as you're hearing this list of short commands Paul gives, you're, you're even despairing saying, there's no way I could do that. But brothers and sisters, realize you know exactly how to do that. Because all of these things that he calls us to are the very things we have each experienced in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Has he not shown great care for your soul? Even in the midst of your weaknesses and failures, has he not come tenderly alongside you to, to strengthen you, to provide you with encouragement and correction as you've needed it? Has he not done so with patience? Yes, even when you make the same mistakes again and again and again, has he not been so unbelievably patient with you to walk with you however long it takes? And hasn't he shown you the ultimate amount of mercy? The eternal mercy of being made right with God, not because you deserved it. Now, quite the opposite. If he gave you what you deserved, you would receive God's punishment. But instead, he gave you forgiveness and righteousness and right standing with God by, by bearing your penalty on the cross. You see, brothers and sisters, the way we are able to have right relationship with each other is to remember the way we have received grace from God and just extend that same grace to each other. So when someone disappoints us, when we find ourselves coming to the end of our rope because someone is making that same mistake again, even the thing we've told them about, we, we remember the patience and kindness and mercy of our Lord Jesus toward us. And we simply extend that same grace toward each other. I, I hope you want to be a part of a church like that. By God's grace, in increasing measure, we can see that sort of love toward each other present in our fellowship. Well, it's important for us to have a right relationship with our leaders. It's very important for us to have a right relationship with each other. But there's one final and most important of all relationships. And that is that we need a healthy relationship with God. A healthy relationship with God. That's what this last largest section is about. We, we'll move through it quickly, so don't despair. We need a healthy relationship with God. Years ago, Precious and I had a chance to take a, a foot tour through uh, Hamburg, Germany, while we were there on a layover. And uh, Hamburg's one of those places that has lots of old buildings, which uh, means it has old churches. We went into these incredible old churches. They had vaulted ceilings and incredible stonework. But you know, the saddest thing was true of these places. They were beautiful, yes, but they were dead and empty. They were simply museums of what 
worship used to look like. No one actively was worshiping in anyone at that point. It's a horrible thing to see the form of religion without the relationship with God that gives it life. This last section shows us what that sort of living relationship with God is intended to look like. You, you can sum it up in two ways. We talk to God and God talks to us. In, in 16 through 18, you can see that we talk to God. This is the, all of the commands here are in the plural. That is, these are things we do together. And they all are the sorts of things we do in this sort of gathering on a Sunday morning in corporate worship. We, we rejoice always. We pray without ceasing. We give thanks in all circumstances. You can say we sing, we pray, we give testimony, talking about God's goodness and all the, the grace we've received from him. Every time we gather together, we do so to remind each other of the God we serve and how good he is. We talk to him because he is here present with us and we have a real living relationship with him. That, that's what we do when we pray. And we give thanks. We thank him for the things he's done this week in our lives. We thank him for the eternal truths that he reveals to us in his word. Now kids, if you're with us this morning, I don't know if you've ever thought about why we pray in church. Essentially, what we're doing, the simplest way to understand it, we're just talking to God. Uh, so that when the elder comes up and he prays, he, he, he's actually leading us in prayer. That, that means you're supposed to listen, not because you're listening to a class or something like that. You're, you're supposed to listen so that you can agree with what he's saying. At the end, when you, we say amen, that is you agreeing, yes, God, this is what we are saying to you. One of the only ways that we can have a relationship with God is to be the sort of church that, that never loses sight of the fact that we are to talk to God. When we sing, when we pray, when we give testimony, God hears us. And yes, that means he is here among us. But there's a second vital piece, and that's that God talks to us. God talks to us. That's what we see in 19 through 22. Now, primarily, God talks to us through Scripture. And you actually see an example of that at the very end of this letter in verse 27. Paul puts them under an oath and tells them, read this letter in the church. That is, Scripture should be read in the church. So we are right to focus on Scripture. And yes, to even say, this is the word of the Lord. But there's a secondary way where God speaks here. In 19 through 22, and that's through what's called prophecy. Now, a quick definition for prophecy, it's just God communicating to us. And there are different forms of prophecy. In the Old Testament, there were uh, people that were called to the office of prophet, like Isaiah. They would come and they would speak for God as his mouthpieces. And what they said had the very authority of Scripture does. It was God speaking directly to us. To disobey them was to disobey God. But there's a different sort of prophecy that the New Testament shows. Uh, in this section here, we see that this prophecy is in danger of two things. One, being ignored. That's why we're told not to despise it, not to quench the spirit. That is, don't just try to do without it altogether. And the second is that it could be uncritically accepted. 
We're told that we need to test it in verse 21, to hold fast to what is good and abstain from everything that's evil. That is it, that these sort of prophetic messages that Paul was describing were not the same thing as Scripture. No, in some way, God was communicating to the church through uh, messages, encouragements, corrections that members would bring to each other. But the members were also responsible to, to test those things against the things they knew to be true of God. Yeah, that certainly means to test them against Scripture. But I also think it means to test them by discussing them amongst each other to ask, does this seem like what God would actually say? Now, one of the biggest controversies that the modern evangelical church has gone through has been the charismatic versus cessationist controversy of decades past. Uh, it has to do with this question of prophecy and other miraculous charismatic gifts of the Spirit. Uh, are they intended to be practiced today, or were they something just for the era of the apostles? Now, those who hold to the what's called the cessationist position would say that during the time where Scripture was not yet completed and not yet all written down, God gave certain miraculous gifts of the Spirit to confirm the, uh, the gospel work that, as it was going out. But now that the canon is completed and the Scriptures are, are written down, that those miraculous gifts have ceased. The continuationist perspective, on the other hand, says that uh, the, the Holy Spirit continues to give these gifts and that they are something that the church should exercise in, in some manner or the other. There, there's lots of different nuances to those two positions, but that's the general sense of it. Now, let me just say that our church has very intentionally tried to make room for both perspectives in our church fellowship. We, in our statement of faith, have left room for both cessationists and continuationists to be in fellowship provided that worship is in order and that we are respectful to each other in the way that we exercise uh, should we uh, believe that it should be exercised. Now, as for my own view on this, as a, I have to have a position, I have to give you an explanation of what I think this is saying. I, uh, I, I hold the position that the Holy Spirit as he wills, continues to give the gifts, uh, including the gifts of prophecy. Now, I, what I, how that plays out, though, I don't think is as foreign as many of us might imagine. John Stott, I think, gets this just, just about right in his commentary. This is what he says. He says, uh, For God undoubtedly gives to some a remarkable degree of insight, either into Scripture itself and its meaning, or into its application to the contemporary world, or into his particular will for a particular people in particular situations. It seems to be quite legitimate to call this insight prophetic insight, and this gift a prophetic gift. It's very similar to what uh, Dr. Phil Riken describes as Christians getting a holy hunch about what God wants them to do. I, I suspect you've had an experience like this at some point or the other. Maybe God just lays someone on your heart out of the blue. You just feel led to go and encourage someone, not even knowing the situation exactly. Maybe you feel led to share a particular verse of scripture with them or, or to give them a phone call. And as you do so, it turns out that the impact you have is so much greater than you possibly could have imagined. I think at that moment, the gift of prophecy is at work among us. 
That is God speaking through us, uh, not speaking scripture, but speaking to the place we live in the moment we live. Now, I hope all of us desire for God to be working in our fellowship that way. That as we feel the Lord leading us to do a particular thing or to talk to a particular brother or sister, that we want for him to have his way among us. We never want to quench the work of the Spirit among us. Let's recognize also that we need to do so humbly. We're, We're told here to test what is good. And that means there will be times where your hunch might be wrong, and that's okay. In those moments, humbly apologize and let's give grace toward each other. And yet, let's realize how vital it is for us to have a living, active, vibrant relationship with God in our fellowship. Because frankly, the alternative is to turn into one of those dead museums of what faith used to look like. So brothers and sisters, let's pray. Let's pray that knowing that God hears us when we do, but let's pray asking God Yes, to speak to us, to use his spirit to guide us and direct us in the small things in our conversations with each other and even in the big things, the direction of our church and the things that we put ourselves to over the long term. We always want to be in a right relationship with God because the moment we stop having a right relationship with God, all the religion and forms of religion we have are worse than useless. So brothers and sisters, uh, we see here a a wonderful vision of what a healthy church can be like and how to keep it healthy. And we should draw great encouragement from knowing that this sort of fellowship is not impossible. It's not just theoretical. It's the sort of thing God does. And he can and will do among us if we'll be attentive to these relationships and most importantly, our relationship with him. Pastor Charles Simeon had a very unhealthy church when he started, but through great patience and endurance, through careful attention to the relationships in his church, and most importantly, their relationship to God, over time, it became a healthy church. He ended up serving there for 49 years. He refused to return evil for evil. When those people Uh, wouldn't let him uh, use the pews. At one point, he had a legal uh, recourse. He could have essentially forced them to unlock them via the courts, but he refused to do so. Instead, he patiently endured with them. He was tireless in visiting, tireless in showing them love, tireless in admonishing, and little by little, the steady drip of God's grace broke the rock of their obstinacy. And over the years, that church became a joyful, living, vibrant fellowship, the sort of church that planted and sent out other uh, preachers all over the world. Brothers and sisters, I, I hope that w- that would be what the Lord would do amongst us at Castleton Community Church. Certainly, we should pray and strive for that to be true of our fellowship. As Paul ends this book to the Thessalonians, this letter to the Thessalonians, I want to use the final benediction he uses as a way for us to think about what God would have us to do together. We are, in a sense, waiting together for the return of Jesus. But we do so with great hope that God will be faithful to do what he says he will. 
And that means to complete our sanctification, to make us into the sort of church with right relationships at all levels. Hear this as our closing prayer and as God's good word for us. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. May he do so among us until he returns.